Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 241. Today's big Bible question is, does God look on the A, outside, or B, inside? Yeah, I know that's a really tough one. Good luck. Happy Monday, dear friends. If you've been following our little fire saga here in California, I'm happy to let you know that as of Sunday night, things have gotten, well, a teensy bit better. Air quality is now simply bad instead of you will certainly die within three seconds of exposure, which, you know, is kind of an improvement. On the other hand, a friend just posted an article that noted the chance of a big earthquake here has suddenly increased due to an active swarm of smaller earthquakes, so there's that. Well, I guess we could escape back home to Alabama, but unfortunately, twin hurricanes are heading towards, well, at least the south, probably not Alabama, but sounds pretty sketchy there, too. Fortunately, the Bible doesn't say anything about earthquakes and storms and things like that, right? Right? Well, if the Daily Bible Podcast all of a sudden goes dark, I guess you'll know what happened, or at least have an idea. Today's Bible readings are 1 Samuel 16, Lamentations 1, Psalms 32, and Romans chapter 14. Now, Romans 14 is one of the most important and practical passages in the entire Bible, and Christians do not pay enough attention to this chapter And we should, and we should have been doing so for hundreds of years. So let me say a little something about it before we consider our main focus passage, which is actually in 1 Samuel. Actually, let's let Tim Keller say a little bit about it, because he honestly says it a little better than me. This is what Keller says about Romans 14, at least the first verse. Paul says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Right away, we're getting into how Paul is moving us way beyond the modern view of tolerance. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on him. Now, modern people say to accept one is to say no negative evaluation at all. I'm not going to say you're right or wrong or you're better or you're worse, but here's what Paul says. Accept your brother without judgment, even though he's wrong, he's weak, he's theologically wrong, he's spiritually immature. In other words, Paul comes in with this very negative evaluation of this hypothetical person and says, accept this person without being judgmental. Modern people say that to be judgmental is to evaluate someone negatively and say, well, your religion is wrong or your religion is weak or something like that. And I want you to know, says Keller, that Paul is talking about something that's very nearly the opposite of that because I've had people over the years in New York say, oh, you believe Jesus is the way to the Father? Great. Every religion is right. But then they don't want to have anything to do with me. They think I'm narrow-minded, so they won't evaluate me negatively. They won't argue with me. They won't disagree with me. But they just don't want to have any sort of relationship with me. Paul is saying the exact opposite. So let me show you how radical he's being. He says, I want you to enter into a relationship with someone you're convinced is seriously and significantly wrong. Wrong about reality, wrong about God, wrong in their beliefs. And you say, well, what do you mean, relationship? Where do you get that from the passage, Tim? And the word accept in the Greek is translating a word, proslambano, which actually means to pull towards you and alongside of you. It means to take somebody in next to you. The most radical example of what I'm trying to say is in verse 1. Verse 1 says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And the translation sometimes doesn't tell us how radical this really is. There's a great commentary on the book of Romans, very long, very technical, lots of scholarship in it by Douglas Moo, and he says that this is a remarkable statement. It says the strong should bear with the weak, and that's a word that literally means like to bear 
a burden. It means to enter under something and sort of hold it up. So it's almost like it should be translated, the strong ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak. So this passage, Romans 14, is not telling us to run from people. It's not telling us to not have an understanding of when they're wrong in something biblical. It's it's saying to accept them, to pull them close, to be in relationship with them, to be tight with them. And that's pretty fascinating stuff there. So let's, um, let's read Romans chapter 14. And as you do, think about how we as Christians could pay more attention to its teaching because if we would, if we would just really take to heart these truths, there would be so much less division in the church. So let's read Romans 14. Then we're going to come back and talk about our main focus passage, which is actually 1 Samuel 16. Romans chapter 14, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand, because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Well, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, to someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it's wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that is not from faith is sin. So, hey, should we be vegetarians or not? What does Paul say? You'll be either way and don't judge each other. Good stuff, right? That passage might be worth your time to read again later on today. My time, too. So over to 1 Samuel. God has rejected the tall, brave, powerful, winsome, charismatic, and handsome King Saul because he's continually done things his own way and like blatantly rejected the commands of God. So God sends the aging Samuel to anoint and set apart the next king 
who ends up being one of the sons of a man named Jesse. As soon as Samuel, the old, wise, powerful, seasoned man of God, sees the sons of Jesse, he assumes he knows which one will be king, and it's good old Eliab. Apparently, Eliab was strikingly handsome and quite tall and well-built because he had this sort of kingly appearance, and Samuel takes one look at him and like, I'm sure this is the Lord's anointed. But it turns out that Samuel guessed wrong. And the mild and the mild rebuke that God gave him for guessing wrong is incredibly important for you and I to realize. So let's go read the passage and see if you can pick up on what God thinks about Samuel's opinion there. Keeping in mind, Samuel's not a young whippersnapper anymore. He's getting nearer to death. Like he's very old. He's walked with God for a long time. He's not immature. He's incredibly mature. And yet he still makes this mistake. Well, I'm going to reiterate that point again, but let's read the passage. First Samuel 16 verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. And Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Now Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are uh, these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that point forward. Then Samuel went out and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul And an evil spirit sent from the Lord began to torment him. So Saul's servant said to him, You see that an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command your servants here in your presence to look for someone who knows how to play the lyre. Whenever the evil spirit from God comes on you, that person can play the lyre and you will feel better. Then then Saul commanded his servants, Find me someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul dispatched messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesus, so Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, wineskin, and one young goat and sent them by his son David to Saul. When David came to Saul and entered his service, Saul loved him very much, and David became his armor bearer. 
Then Saul sent word to Jesse, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor with me. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would pick up his lyre and play, and Saul would then be relieved, feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Well, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about in that passage, like a ton, but let's talk about this one. Did you catch the main point of the passage, at least for us today? It's in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Now, if Samuel, the wise and mighty man of God, can make such a a mistake like that, you can believe that you and I are extremely vulnerable to making that exact same kind of mistake too. So what does it mean that God doesn't look at the visible? God sees the heart. Well, it's a good question. First of all, does it mean that God examines our blood pumping mechanism to see how sound it is? Well, no, it doesn't. I think we know that. It's a metaphorical statement, just like Jeremiah 17.10, which in the Christian Standard Bible says, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Jeremiah 17.10. But now, you know, if you were a Hebrew person and you were reading that passage in the Hebrew, you would immediately see something in Jeremiah 17.10 that those of us reading in English don't see. Although most modern translations go with heart in Jeremiah 17.10, I test the heart, says God. The actual Hebrew word there is, wait for it, kidneys. Well, wait a minute, you're saying we don't think or act with our kidneys. What sort of sorcery is this? Well, I hate to spoil it for you, but we really don't think or act with our heart either. The heart's a muscle. It pumps blood. It doesn't, it's not the seat of our emotions. It's, it's a heart. But that doesn't mean that God is mistaken on anatomy 101. I mean, he made us after all. He knows how the human body works. But the thing is, both Jeremiah 17.10 and 1 Samuel 16.7 are using the inner organs to represent the inner person, the inner man. Here's another example, and this is kind of a funny one in the King James Version for those of us that are still in fifth grade, and also me. Genesis 43.30 says, Joseph made haste for his bowels did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. His bowels yearned for his brother? What? What? What is this? Well, it simply means that he deeply, like literally to the depths of his being, to the center of his person, desired to see his missing brother. And he went kind of running from the room because he started crying. Have you ever seen something that made you sad or made your heart ache and sort of left you? You felt it in the inner person, in your insides? I remember a two-week mission trip to Peru that uh, I took somewhere in 2004, I think, when I was a young father. I missed my wife and kids so much, and every night I would look at pictures of them that my wife sent along with me, and man, it made me feel strange in my gut I missed them so much. And this is sort of what all these passages are referring to. Not our organs, but our internals, our thoughts, feelings, emotions. And we sometimes feel our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, even though they come from our brain. We sometimes feel them in our center, our guts, our kidneys, our heart, etc., It's the inner person, not how we look or how tall we are or how strong we are. God's concerned about our thoughts, our motives, the inner man, the inner person that drives the actions and the words of the outer person. 
For instance, Proverbs 16.2 says, All a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs motives. Where do motives come from? Well, they come from inside of us, and that's what God looks at. Jesus also looked internally into people and did not regard their outer appearance or the accoutrements of wealth and power. And John 2, 24 and 25 says, Jesus would not entrust himself to men since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was inside of people. He could look past the outer appearance into the inner person. So what are the implications of this truth for us? Is it just information for us as to the character of God? Well, no, it's not. As Jesus says, this is not just something that God does and Jesus does. It's a posture, a way of thinking that you and I have to adopt as well. In fact, Jesus says in John 7, 24, stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. And what is righteous judgment? It's judging according to the inside. So in a world of Instagram influencers, TikTok celebrities, and the fabulously wealthy, may we take this to heart, or, you know, take it to the kidneys, and stop judging with our eyes. And we will continue in Lamentations chapter 1, verse 1. Aleph, how she sits alone, the city once crowded with people. She who is great among the nations has become like a widow. The princes among the provinces has been put to forced labor. I'm going to pause here. Because this is a Hebrew poetry we're reading, and it begins, each verse is a stanza, which begins with a letter of the Hebrew Bible. So Aleph is first, then Beit, B-E-T-H, then Gimel, then Dalet, then Hey. So that's what's going on. When you hear those Hebrew words, I'm just reading the very first Hebrew word, a letter of each stanza. Beit. She weeps bitterly during the night with tears on her cheeks. There is no one to offer her comfort, not one from all her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Gimel. Judah has gone into exile following affliction and harsh slavery. She lives among the nations but finds no place to rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in narrow places. Dalit. The road to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the for the appointed festivals. All her gates are deserted. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve, and she herself is bitter. Hey, her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease, for the Lord has made her suffer because of her many transgressions. Her children have gone away as captives before the adversary. Bob, all the splendor has vanished from daughter Zion. Her leaders are like stags that find no pasture. They stumble away exhausted before the hunter. Zion. During the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious belongings that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into the adversary's hand, she had no one to help. The adversaries looked at her, laughing over her downfall. Tate. Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she has become an object of scorn. All who honored her now despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Tate, her uncleanness stains her skirt. She never considered her end. Her downfall was astonishing. There was no one to comfort her. Lord, look on my ex- affliction, for the enemy boasts. Yod, the adversary has seized all her precious belongings. She has even seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those you have forbidden 
to enter your assembly. Cough. All her people groan while they search for bread. They have traded their precious belongings for food in order to stay alive. Lord, look and see how I have become despised. Lameth. Is this nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. Is there any pain like mine which was dealt out to me, which the Lord made me suffer on the day of his burning anger? Mame. He sent fire from on high into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, sick all day long. Noon. My transgressions have been formed into a yoke, fastened together by his hand. They have been placed on my neck, and the Lord has broken my strength. He has handed me over to those I cannot withstand. Samek. The Lord has rejected all the mighty men within me. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young warriors. The Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah like grapes in a wine press. I in. I weep because of these things. My eyes flow with tears, for there is no one nearby to comfort me, no one to keep me alive. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Pay. Zion stretches out her hands. There is no one to comfort her. The Lord has issued a decree against Jacob that his neighbors should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become something impure among them. Chade. The Lord is just, for I have rebelled against his command. Listen, all you people, look at my my pain. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. Kof. I called to my lovers, but they betrayed me. My priests and elders perished in the city while searching for food to keep themselves alive. Resh. Lord, see how I am in distress. I am churning within. My heart is broken. For I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword takes the children. Inside there is death. Sheen. People have heard me groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my misfortune. They are glad that you have caused it. Bring on the day you have announced, so that they may become like me. Tav. Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them, as you have dealt with me, because of all my transgressions. For my groans are weary, and I am sick at heart. Finally, Psalm. Chapter 32, verse 1. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters came, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and show you the way to go with my eye on you. I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord who will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord, rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Yes, Lord, amen. Let the joyful shout rise up in our heart. Dear friends, may the Lord give you a good week, a joyful week. May he protect you and guide you in all his ways. Good day and Godspeed.